0: Hello there, uh, Brad Klein here for TurfNet Renovation Report. Uh, we're going to be speaking today with a very interesting uh, golf industry business financial analyst, Larry Hirsch. And uh, I want to thank our sponsors for this uh, opportunity, uh, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Larry, it's, um, golf is back kind of a couple of boom years after a slow decline. You're in the business of looking at golf as a business. Tell us how you got into that. It's an unusual perspective. Most people enjoy playing golf. You seem to immerse yourself. Obviously, you're a great golfer. I know this because we've played golf. And I, don't I get used enough, to be. <laughs> I, I don't get enough shots from you, but a uh, fascinating industry that you've uh, helped in a sense, create a side of. Tell us about uh, what you do. Well,
1: basically how I got into doing what I do is um, uh, I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania in Harrisburg, and both of my parents were residential real estate brokers. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, they both encouraged me while I was in high school Uh, to get my real estate license when I was 18 years old, which I did. And I sold real estate, you know, for working for my dad and then my mom and, and quickly realized that um, whether the color of the kitchen or the appliances were correct, wasn't really very appealing to me to deal with. Um, And they encouraged me to get into the appraisal End of the real estate business um, because it's a it's a very independent type of a profession uh, and um, so I got into that and and I did all kinds of appraisals for a number of years you know wh- whether it be office building shopping centers uh, warehouses apartment complexes. Land development land, uh, and in some for for a short period of time, I I even did some residential single family type appraisal work. Um, And then in the late 80s, I kind of said to myself, You know, I don't see anybody paying attention to golf courses in the real estate business. There was one guy at the time uh, who was out in the Midwest, and uh, I think that would be fun because golf courses use a lot of real estate. And so I kind of made it my business to go out and learn the golf business. And that's kind of how I got to where I'm at now is just developing that and going going to different events and learning as much as I could and, and observing things a little differently than I had before that. And that's, that's how I got
0: where I am. And I just do it because I love it. Um, it's often been said that golf is a great game, but a lousy business. Um, I suspect some of that is because the people who, who are in it treat it like a game rather than a business. If you're at, at a club- uh, Well, at,
1: at, 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 a, at a private club, there's a whole bunch of dynamics going on that we, we'll, we can get into, but, but there's, there's, some, there's some really bad fundamentals as it relates to golf uh, from a real estate investment perspective. And just to give you an example, um, if you have, you know, a typical golf course is what, 150 acres, 200 acres. Um, if you take a site that's suitable for a golf course, and let's say just so we speak in round numbers that it has 200 acres. And let's say that the zoning in that area calls for uh, half acre lots. So on that property, you could probably get about, um between 300 and 350 lots. Let, let's say conservatively 300 lots after you take out for infrastructure and utilities and retention areas and environmental issues, whatever it is, you know. So you have 200 acres and now you've got 300 lots. And what's the average, uh, the average family size of a single family home? I think I read somewhere that it was 3.2 people per family, you know? So basically the average family is one, the average family unit is 1.2 kids. So that means that if you have 300 lots and 3.2 people, you have about 960 people that can use that 200 acre site every day. If you put an 18 hole golf course on that same site, if you do a double shotgun start with two groups per hole in the morning and two groups per hole in the afternoon, you're going to get 288 people are able to use that site. Playing six hour rounds. <laughs> Playing a six hour round, correct. So, so the, you know, the basic fundamentals, if you just do the math, right. don't work for golf as far as efficient use of the real estate asset. Now, when you get, when you get into when you get into private clubs, you know, there's Bob Dedman's old saying that, you know, clubs are run like nobody's business because they are nobody's business. And, you know, you have all the emotional elements that go into private clubs and you have the politics that, you know, that are, are terrible at most private clubs uh, where you you have the same old crowd in control, you know, for extended periods of time, or you have a group that comes in for a year and says, "Okay, I served my time, I'm done," and it just turns over because you know the club struggles and nobody wants to wants to be in those positions. The other the other element that you have at private clubs is that everybody wants to push their own agenda. Um, you know, they don't they get in power and it becomes their little fiefdom and and, and, and they're, you know, they're thinking in their small circle of, of themselves and their friends. I mean, and they're not, you know, they're not professionals, so you can't expect them to think any other way. Right. And, um, and then they, you know, they, they make decisions that aren't necessarily based in logic and based on the long-term best interests of the club. So, you know, there, there's a lot of fundamentals that exist that relate to the business of golf and the business of clubs that, you know, are a little different than how we run our normal businesses.
0: The, um, I mean, one of those is that uh, it's basically golf is kind of an indulgence. It's a recreational uh, spend. It's discretionary. And for a lot of people, it's kind of throwaway money. Um, how do you, as an analyst, go in and try to get them to think about money, not as spending, but as investing in a property?
1: Well, if, you know, since we're kind of focused on renovations and restorations and, 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 and these kind of projects here, you know, I think that the first thing that any club has to do is they have to first figure out um, what they've got, you know uh, I mean, some, some places can be made, you know, can be renovated or, or restored into fabulous golf courses that could host major events. Other places can't. And members are not always realistic about what their club is or can become. Yep. So I think it's important that both from a physical standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a market standpoint, and maybe most importantly, from a cultural standpoint, because every club has its own culture. Right. Right. Um, these clubs have to have an independent objective assessment done of all four of those things, a, 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 a facilities analysis, a market analysis, an economic analysis, and a culture analysis. So once they've done that and they have a, a benchmark or a baseline of what's there and what can be done and can be accomplished, then I think um, you know, they've got to put the potential improvements into three categories. The first category is deferred maintenance. Uh, Before COVID, we went through a period of what, 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is, where a lot of clubs experienced uh, a good amount of distress. And uh, by virtue of, of experiencing this distress, they didn't really pay attention to updating, you know, the things that aren't real sexy, like the irrigation system, like the roof on the clubhouse, like the mm-hmm. cart path paving and, and the drainage in the bunkers and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And, and so they have a lot of deferred maintenance. That's number one. Number two is then you get into the, into the enhancements or improvements that you want to make to the club. And you have, in my opinion, two categories of enhancements. You have the enhancements that you want to do that are going to help the club economically. In other words, what what improvements can you make to the club? Maybe it's a fitness facility, maybe it's an expanded practice facility that increases the capacity. Excuse me, the capacity of the club, or or something like that. Maybe it's some sort of new dining. Or um, it could be a
0: daycare center
1: for the membership. Or a, or a daycare center. You know that can help. What you do is you identify those enhancements that can generate revenues. Right. Because you know, a lot of times what clubs are doing when they're doing renovation projects is they're is they're trying to either turn themselves around or grow economically. And then the last, the last part of that wish list is, is the you know, just the the things they desire. You know, maybe it's geez, you know, I don't like the, I don't like the 14th hole. Uh, you know the greens too severe, or 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 I think we should have wider fairways, or I think you know the bunkers are too severe, or whatever it is, you know things that okay yeah that'd be nice to do that, um, but let's get you know the let's get the the first two done first before we go to that so that we can pay for
0: that. I'll give you an example of that one that doesn't pay is let's get the seven thousand yards. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Nobody plays the back tees, but they want to be a, a billboard. Anyway, let's go ahead. I get it. So we got these two categories. We got the categories that could earn money, whether they do is, and pay for themselves as a separate issue. Well,
1: the, the first category doesn't really earn money. It just fixes problems that absolutely need to be fixed. I mean, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be sitting there in the middle of August and have your irrigation system blow up because it's 37 years old. Right, and you don't you don't want to have a banquet in the banquet room that all of a sudden the roof starts leaking and you know <laughs> it becomes a disaster. So mm. those things aren't going to make you more money. They're not sexy, and nobody's going to join because you
0: fix them because they expect that. But if you don't fix them, they won't join.
1: So exactly. So that's
0: that's kind of preventive maintenance that you exactly. have to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And so. Are you finding that clubs are more amenable to this kind of analysis these days? I mean, it seems to me that there's more professional management. You've got a move away from voluntary boards, at least um, on an executive level, between the GM in particular. I'm seeing at least a little bit more of that than I was 15 years ago. Yeah,
1: I. I think I am, um, you know, since since I've started kind of writing about it a little bit, I, I'm getting some calls and getting some interest in doing this kind of work. Whereas uh, I think previously, um, at least the response was kind of a, well, we know it all response, you know, let's face it at, at a private club, the people that are members and subsequently the people that are on boards are usually successful, intelligent people, but they're not in the club industry. You know they're 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 there for two or three years and 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 they're really flying blind and sometimes they don't even want to listen to their manager or their golf pro or their superintendent um, you know tell them what they need to do.
0: Some of this is governance as well, isn't it? Um, and it's very hard. Uh, and I find. It's partly governance. It's partly club culture. And I think a lot of superintendents in particular get caught up in this and it's not their fault, but if you're, you can be the most qualified turf grass manager in the world, but if you're not getting the support or understanding from the board or from the GM or from the golf professional, it becomes very difficult to do your job. And
1: well, I'll tell you a great, I'll tell you a great story uh, about three or four years ago. Uh, I walked into my dentist's office for my normal checkup. And he was the president of his club. And he always loved BSing with me when I
0: came in. You know, it was funny. I was always sitting there with my mouth open trying to talk to him about his club. I know that I've gotten the same treatment. I had a a dentist, by the way, who offered me uh, free braces if I'd get a master's ticket. So (laughs) Um, go ahead, go ahead.
1: So anyhow, so I walk in, uh, this was in 2018, in November of 2018. And 2018 in, in this part of the world was a terrible weather year with lots of heat and lots of rain. And so he, I walk in there and he says to me, Larry, I got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, He says I got people on my board that want to fire the superintendent. I, and I looked at him, I said, I said, well, all I'll tell you is that if you fire your superintendent after the year that we've had here, which every superintendent I've talked to has said is the toughest year they've had, then you're not going to get anybody any good to take the job. And, and I said, I don't think you want to be in that position. And he goes to me, can I quote you on that? I said, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's what happens. You know, it's, it's, it's the thing that it's the same, same concept that, you know, Guys at the club go and they travel to Scotland and they spend $10,000 for a week in Scotland where they play on hard brown fairways and slow grainy greens. And they come home and they rave about it and they see a brown spot on their golf course and they want to fire the superintendent. Right. And, and there's just, you know, there's no logic to it. But, you know, so I, I mean, the thing I see now to get back to your original question and, and i think this is a result of the covid revenue surge that a lot of clubs are experiencing uh, is that you know now these clubs may be more willing to retain professional help in a variety of areas than they were when they didn't have the money to spend so I, th- I think that's a big part about it and And, you know, it's, it's kind of a lesson that these clubs need to learn and do now while they can, so that they can preserve themselves long-term because, you know, there's going to be another dip.
0: You know, it's funny what I find that basically, uh, I always like to say that every club is the same, but in a different way, they, they all have the same kind of issues. The personalities play out a little bit, uh, what I do find at clubs, because I do the, the facility golf course analysis part, not the financial part that you're talking about, but at a lot of clubs nowadays, you'll find 10 or 12 younger guys who understand these things. They've built up a business or they've done a startup. And I have to say, I usually find it easier to deal with people who have started up a business than the people who inherited a business because they understand what it's like to start from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And they travel, and they maybe they're raiders with various publications and magazines. They've been to Scotland. They've been to Band and Dunes. They've been to Streamsong. They've gotten around. And I find that it's really important to to develop that kind of a core and let them infiltrate the Green Committee, uh, the board, uh, the golf committee, and start influencing and talking to others. Uh, Turning around the culture of a club is a complicated process. It's like steering a a cruise ship into the port without a tugboat. Um, so it's it's a complicated process. And I, I find that superintendents who are, I, I try to encourage them to pick out who, they, who their allies are and let those allies do the work for them rather than uh, the real disasters when a superintendent puts his neck on the line and starts advocating. That never works.
1: Well, you know, the thing is, is that I think one of the problems that a lot of clubs have in the governance area is that there are too many people at, 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 at just about, you know, at a lot of clubs, there are too many instances where the people that are in control or in power at the club are the people that covet that power at, rather than the people who have whatever skills are necessary to, effectively manage that power. Uh So, you know, what happens is, you know, the the guy that the guy that maybe has a certain skill. Um you know he joins the club and he's a busy guy and he's a successful businessman and he says, I don't want to screw around with this. You know, he he may love the club and he may support it and so forth and so on, but he doesn't want to spend, you know, eight hours a week in board and committee meetings. And oh, yep. Yeah. And and I think what happens is you get you get people who are in positions of, of influence and authority at clubs
0: mm-hmm.
1: who the club is is the you know is the center of their of their life. And you know, for all intents and purposes, it becomes too important. You know, yep. and, and and they lose perspective. And and that's you know, that's where you find the guys that you don't want to go out and make changes to the golf course that don't need to be made. That's where you find the guys that make up rules that have, you know, solutions that have no problems, I like to call them. Um, and 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 that's part of the problem with the club dynamic. I mean, that's one of the reasons that that uh, benevolent dictatorships in clubs seem to work better than board and committee run clubs. Now, obviously, you can get a bad benevolent dictator, but, but typically, uh, you know, that – you know, that works pretty well. I mean, uh, you know, Fred Ridley's doing a great job. Uh,
0: We're going to take a break here um, with Larry Hirsch, Golf Industry Analyst. Uh, We're with TurfNet Renovation Report. Brad Klein here, and I want to thank our sponsors, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. We'll be right back. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for aerification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantsnutrient.com/turf.
1: From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand, through capillary action, as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a 3-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences, all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com.
0: We're back with the TurfNet Renovation Report. Brad Klein here reporting. I'm with industry analyst Larry Hirsch, and I want to thank our sponsors, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Larry, we've been talking about governance and financial and the business side of the industry. Uh, When you get involved in a consulting basis with a facility, are there uh, identifiable metrics that you can point to that indicate success versus failure or ways to measure whether an investment is going to pay off in infrastructure? That's a a
1: great question. And and I'd like to start the answer with of that question with a little story about, oh, 20 years ago, I was involved in building a, a, a club that doesn't exist anymore. It didn't last very long. Uh, but um, I was involved in building a club and somebody uh, ambled up to the bar and sat down next to me at, at our club and, and asked me what the return on investment was on his potential purchase of a membership. And I looked at him and I said, if you're looking at it as an investment, don't buy a membership because what you're buying is basically a license to go play golf. And and I wouldn't do that. And and in a private club, in a not-for-profit situation, return on investment is a term that is usually associated with how long is it gonna take you to get your money back and what kind of profit are you gonna get out of it? And in in the case of a private club, I think return on investment needs to be delivered or measured a little bit differently. And what I've always felt is that, you know, depending on what the club's problems are, let's say the club is, is deficient in membership, it needs more members. You know, let's say it's got 200 members and it needs 300 members. Then the question I think should be presented in a way where A, you say, how much is it going to cost to do what we think is necessary to do to get those members? And what is that going to do to our income and expense pro forma? And then also, I think you need to look at what I call the downside is let's say we do this and we make these enhancements and improvements, but it doesn't work. Maybe the economy changes, maybe uh, a disaster hits that, you know, people aren't joining clubs for a while, or maybe something happens that, that, that you know, extrinsically that, that people aren't gonna join the club. Then the question you have to ask is how much is it gonna cost each member to pay for these improvements. In other words, if the dues are now $10,000, are they going to become $12,000 if nobody joins? And then, you know, you can also kind of do the reciprocal of that analysis, if you will, where you say, okay, what's it going to do to dues if we get 100 members? And and you have to look at all sides of that analysis. Uh But, you know, a a not-for-profit club isn't, Isn't looking to do ROI calculations and internal rates of return and and that sort of stuff. Now, Club Corp, Arcus, Concert, those people are looking for ROI. And and we certainly do ROI analyses for them, but they look at clubs very differently than a member owned club should and does uh, because their objective is profit, whereas the member owned club is, you know, we want to have a recreational amenity for our membership.
0: But in any case, this is the kind of analysis that any facility could undertake. It's just a matter of which options then become more attractive to you. But e- even if you're a municipality uh, run by an enterprise fund, they ought to look at what's the potential return, right? Oh, uh, absolutely. So this is a kind of industry analysis.
1: If you're, if you're a municipality and, and, you're, and you're dealing with a municipal golf course, you know, the politics of it are such that the ROI invest, the R, ROI analysis becomes very important. Be, you know, it becomes politically very important. Um, you know, I mean, we all know that, what is it, 10, 12% if that of the population plays golf? Uh, maybe, maybe more in, in, in some areas that have golf courses. Whatever the number is, it's, it's not a big portion of the population. Right. Um, So, you know, municipality has a whole different uh, group of issues that they need to consider. You know, uh, one of the things one of the things I think is undersold, if you will, by by municipalities that have golf courses is does this golf course not only improve and enhance the quality of life in the community, but does it create an economic engine which brings in business? And and I don't think that they pay attention to that enough. And and then, you know, you have to look again at, you know, if you're going to do any improvements, uh, will they enhance the economics of of the facility so that the uh, residents, you know, that don't play golf don't necessarily have to pay for it.
0: Right. So let's say you're you're dealing with a club that's looking at a modest million-dollar budget for bunker repairs and irrigation fixes, uh, greens expansion. How would you go about looking at what the metrics are, if not return on investment, then the potential benefit, cost, risks? How do you go about doing that if you're standing there in front of the
1: Well, the first first thing (laughs) I look at is where's the club at now? You know, do they are they throwing any cash to the bottom line? Are they are, are they cash flow negative? Uh, where do they stand now? I.e., how is it going to be paid for? Let's assume, let's assume for a second that they're that they're cash flow zero. Okay, so they don't, you know, they're not losing money, they have these things that need to be done, but they got to figure out how they're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have the issue, uh, um, depending, and, and, and here's where all the moving parts come in. You know, then you have the issue of, well, okay, are, are, if it's a membership or a community or whatever it is, are they willing to pay for it? And that gets into the culture of the club. Um, if, if they're not willing to pay for it, um, are they willing to give up access by having more members or more rounds, or in the case of a municipal course, higher fees? And, and if they, if they make those kinds of changes, uh, will that impact the number of members or number of rounds that are played? Okay. So as you can see, you know, it's the old, uh, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction and you've got to calculate what those might be um, and, and do your analysis based on whatever the overall goals of the facility are. You know, that, we didn't even talk about that and, and it's kind of remiss of me, but but if you have a club that, you know, its its goals are to generate financial profit, return on investment, whatever, then you look at this one way. If you have If you have a club that's the culture is willing to pay to have the best club out there, the best golf course out there, you look at it differently. They may say, we're willing to pay a couple thousand dollars a year more, but we don't want more members and we don't want more people on the golf course. So they're paying more for the
0: license to play golf, basically.
1: Exactly. And they're paying more for the license to play golf in an environment where there are less obstacles to access.
0: And if they can afford it, then it makes sense for them at that moment. But it might not not make sense for the club down the road. What each club has to decide Mm -hmm.
1: when they get into this is what do they want to be when they grow up? Do you want to be the prestigious exclusive club that does 12,000 rounds a year and has 250 members? And are you willing to pay for that? Or do you want to be uh, uh, more of an every man's club that costs half that much and you put up with having to sign up for tea times two weeks in advance and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and that's, you know, that's where the culture comes into it. Every club has a different culture. And, and a lot of times those cult, there's a conflict at any club about culture, you know, because you always have in every club, you have what I call marginal members. And those are the guys that, you know, when, when they're looking at their, their finances, you know, the individual finances for a year, to some of them, the club is a drop in a bucket. To, the, uh, to others, it's a real luxury, and they're making space for that in their personal budgets to
0: pay for it. You know, what's interesting is, uh, let's not convey the wrong impression that a club club culture is uniform. I've seen, I'm dealing, for example, with an upstate New York facility. They, they might have a $400,000 maintenance budget, and a fourth of their members are millionaires who have a retreat up in the woods and half their membership are local truck drivers, school, dr- school teachers, and shopkeepers who can barely afford, you know, whatever the membership fee is, $800 a year. So right, right. that's when you really get some very interesting dynamics, when you have some folks who are willing to pay and others who can't afford what they're paying right now. So,
1: well, you know, one of the things that, that, that I've been working on is developing a bunch of questions to ask clubs about their culture.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, for instance, is the cost of membership too high, too low, or just right? Are club services and amenities too elaborate, too simple, just right. Uh, Is the club atmosphere too formal and stuffy, formal, but okay. Warm, comfortable and relaxed, too relaxed and informal. And, and you just, you know, you go down these things. You ask, why do people use the clubs it for golf or social activities or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you find the club's membership? You know, is it snobby? Is it cold? Is it lukewarm? Is it warm and friendly? Uh, is it sincerely friendly? Is it unsincere? You know, and I've developed all these questions that we're huh. starting as I, as, you know, when I get them done and I have probably got, I'm looking at this, maybe 20 of them here, 15 or 20 of them. I'm going to integrate them into all my analyses, whether it be an appraisal or a a club consulting assignment or whatever. I got a a call yesterday from an upscale club on the West Coast, and they said, well, we, we read one of your articles or whatever, and we have too many members, and we need to find out what the right number of members is and
0: how to get there. The classic membership drive. You got to drive out 5% of your members. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: Interesting. And that that might be a rational decision. That's the other, you know, what's interesting is that um, I think the industry has evolved a little bit. I think for, for a long time, the focus, particularly at public courses, was on round count. More rounds equated to success. whereas. To me, the issue ought to be revenue or average revenue per, per round. There are a lot, of, a lot of different metrics you can use, but I've always found that the round count is one of the least reliable because you could it, it, it contributes to discounting. It contributes to cheapening the product, and it, it leads to the erosion of the quality without questioning whether that's really where you want to be. Now, there are some facilities that need to go there the smaller it's the,
1: it's the wrong metric if it's used wrongly and it's usually used wrongly mm-hmm. the, the the problem is that what you need to do with round counts is you need to work backwards and when i say that you need to work backwards first of all you need to determine the market position of any club you know is it going to be the affordable daily fee that pumps as many rounds through and gives as much access for as little money as, as as you want to be? Or are you going to be something else? So once you determine that answer, which one of those market segments you're going to be, which one is the best one for you, then I think you have to say to yourself, even a private club, you've got to say, how many rounds do we want? What, what number of rounds Provides the experience we want our members to have or our patrons to have. (laughs) And and then you work backwards from there. What's it going to take to get to that point? And I don't think enough clubs do that. One of the things that that we've done for years, and I and I haven't seen many people do this, is we calculate when when we survey a club and we're in our database taking down data when we're talking to somebody. And we say to somebody, well, how many golf members do you have? How many total members do you have? And how many rounds do you play? And what's your food and beverage revenue and all that stuff? Well, one of the things that we calculate, and and it's, you know, it's automatic in our database. One of the things that we calculate is the number of rounds per membership. Now that includes, you know, outing rounds and tournaments or whatever. But the whole idea is, you know, we want to get a handle on the culture of the club, and one of the one of the metrics for the culture of a club is how busy it is. You know, some clubs the members play eight rounds a year, twelve rounds a year, especially especially a uh, a secondary club. You know, like like a club like you know I belong to a club in in down south, and 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 I you know I play maybe ten rounds a year there. Twelve rounds a year there, whatever. Now I make, I take some guests and whatever. So I'm responsible for maybe 25 or 30 rounds. Okay. But to me, if if I were any club, one of the things I would be paying a whole lot of attention to is how many rounds per membership are generated at that club. And hopefully I've already established how many rounds we want to host at our golf course. I think, I think that's a starting point.
0: So the, what you're talking about is setting goals and being realistic about where you are in the marketplace before you go into any of these um, plans for renovation or membership drive or, or whatever. You have to be realistic um, about where, you, where you're positioned or where you'd like to be positioned and what you can afford. <clears throat> right. And that's the most important thing to set those goals first.
1: Right I mean every 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 club every club would love to say we don't have tea times and and do ten thousand rounds a year or eight thousand rounds a year but you know then you've got the economic issues are you, are your members willing to pay $25,000 a year dues All
0: right
1: you know'm I'm, in, I'm involved in a case right now as an expert witness where a member I'm, and, and we're working for the member suing the club because their dues are way out of line with the market. They have bylaws that say there should only be X number of members, which is a very reasonable number. And they're doing, at least reporting, a reasonable number of rounds. And yet nobody can get tee times and the club is losing a lot of money. So, you know, what's going on? Something's something's awry there, Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so that's, you know, that's the kind of things where I think people, you know, I mean, obviously there's some fraud and corruption at some of these places, but there's also there's also just people who didn't plan effectively by understanding, you know, how many they want. You know, all these clubs that are out there that were built, especially the the residential club communities, you know, what what the developer did is he developed a set of bylaws and put a cap on membership in there that was based on how many memberships he thinks he could sell at at, at x amount of dollars, and compare that to what he thought it was going to cost to build the club. All right. You know that what they they didn't do it from the perspective of okay, how many rounds do we want to play? What kind of membership culture are we going to have, and how many rounds are are they going to likely play? You know I hear story after story after story in Florida of all these clubs where people are buying these six-figure memberships and they can't get tee times. I remember I remember doing a case one time, and, and I won't mention the club, obviously, but it's it's a club, you know, a lot of people know about in Florida, and the community was about a half to 60% billed out. And they had three golf courses, and there was already a lottery for tee times. And I remember a guy at my club saying to me, Hey, what do you know about such and such a club? And I go, I would be real careful about joining there because when they build out the rest of the houses, it's, it's going to be a, a, you know,
0: You can't say it. You can't say what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Very interesting. Well, you know, this pertains, we're going to have to wrap this up in a minute, but this pertains also to superintendents budgets, because I think it's very important for a green committee to ask not so much uh, what kind of conditions do we want, but what is it going to cost to get the conditions we want and can we afford it? And how do you relate conditions to the I think
1: it, I think it goes one step further and I know superintendents can do this because I've asked. Um, first of all, there has to be a written maintenance plan because when you have a written maintenance plan, you have a place that the green committee and the superintendent both can go to as a, as a common ground. That's number Mm -hmm. one. Number two is that if the maintenance plan is done correctly, and there's enough detail in it, you can say to your green committee, well, we're not going to hand mow approaches, and we're not going to hand rake bunkers, and this is what it'll save you. And you start to quantify things that I think... to. I, that I think to most people, especially the typical club member. I mean, you know, I'm in this business. And if you said to me, how much would we save by, by triplexing the greens and using a sand pro in the bunkers rather than hand rakes? I couldn't answer that question. So the superintendent needs to be the guy that's communicating that in, a, in order to tell his mem- communicate to his membership and, and his green committee here's what it costs. Here's what we can do. And, 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 you know, here's how much we can save if we do it this way. And this is the product you'll get, you know, I mean, I've calculated. Another thing I like to calculate is how much per round, whether it be at a private club or a daily fee course, how much per round is spent on golf course maintenance. Right. And I remember about five years ago, I walked out on the first tee, you know, and we started talking about it and I had calculated that it cost like 80 some dollars around for maintenance at that time at, at our club. And I thought, boy, that's a lot of money. Think about that. Yeah, look, think of the golf courses you can play for less than that that are pretty good golf courses. Now, I realize there's a lot more to a club than that and the cost and, and so forth and so on. But the fact of the matter is you need to know that. And, and I don't think, you know, getting back to your question about metrics. I don't think, and I'm no you know, scientific statistician by any stretch, but I don't think the industry and in particular members and, and superintendents and committees and whatever do enough to look at the various metrics that they could calculate, like rounds per membership and, and maintenance costs per round and, and those kinds of things. Um, you know one of the, one of the things that uh, that I've also seen that you know they do at at our, at our club, which I think is fantastic is they keep track of how many practice balls are hit each year so that they know how much turf they need based on the average size of a divot and blah 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 you know assuming people do linear divots and all that I mean it's you know who knows how,
0: precise it is but at least it gives you an indication with your superintendent i know it's precise <laughs> yeah you're right i, I i've commented <laughs> um, if you drop the sandwich in his garage you could pick it up and eat it and it would be you know sanitary
1: well you know we did we did a an appraisal earlier last about a year ago um maybe less than that last year of a of a of a very uber upscale limited membership private club 18 holes that that had a maintenance budget that was just you know outrageous i mean it was over 3 million dollars for a for a, an 18 hole golf course and there was a guy on staff they told me whose sole job it was to go around and pick up broken tees
0: yeah well that's how you spend 300 dollars around yeah exactly Exactly. Which is, I'm sure, what they were spending. It was it's close to that. Yeah, ten thousand rounds, three million. There you go. Yeah, not hard to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, Larry, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, we're with uh, golf industry analyst Larry Hirsch, and I've, once again, the uh, TurfNet renovation report. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Golf Preservation, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Uh, lots of different aspects to the renovation side of the the business and Larry uh, you're uh, you've brought business sense uh, to the industry and I hope everyone appreciates what you do thanks thank you
1: thanks for having me Brad